The scripture this morning is John 10, 22 through 42. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Last Sunday, we, we looked at the demand that the Jews made of Jesus. And at Jesus' initial response to their demand in verses 22 to, to 30. The demand was that Jesus end the suspense and tell us plainly, whether or not you are the Christ. And Jesus' initial response, again, this was last week, was fivefold. First, he told them, I already told you enough about who I am, such that if you don't believe me about those things, you won't believe me about this either, no matter how plainly I speak. Second, I've already shown you enough about who I am such that if my works haven't already convinced you, speaking more plainly on this matter won't help either. Third, your unbelief, the fact that I'm standing in front of you, having said the things I've said and shown you the things I've shown you, but you still don't believe, is rooted in the fact that the Father has not yet given you to me. Fourth, the blessings for those who receive me as the Christ are beyond measure. Consider this. Lastly, fifthly, I and the Father are one. In all of that, we also marveled at the staggering glory of Jesus and the staggering power of sin to keep us from seeing it apart from the grace of God. So this week, then, we'll pick up where we left off last week with the Jews' response to the things Jesus said to their, in response to their question. The response, as we'll see, and as Jesus so plainly predicted, was persistence in disbelief. They didn't believe, 
questioned Jesus. He answered them, and they persisted in their disbelief. And their disbelief led them to pick up stones with which to stone Jesus, to throw at him until he was dead. And then, though, after an interesting argument made by Jesus, they moved to the lesser response in their disbelief of seeking to arrest him. In the end, though, as you see at the very end of this passage, John tells us that there was another group of Jews some distance away, a large group even, that would come to believe in Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear, and here's what I want you to pay attention to in particular. Throughout his gospel, John has been stacking glories of Jesus, one on top of the other. The glorious things that he said and did and was and fulfilled and promised yet to do. Top of that, though, he also stacked up the rejections of those who heard Jesus and saw him. The rejection of the Jews in particular, the chosen people of God, in their anger and slander and intimidation and attempts to censure and murder him. The power of sin is seen in them and their persistent rejection and the growing divide between them and the Christ that they so longed for, who's Jesus. But the greater power of God, of his grace, is seen in the fact that God overcame the disbelief of many. All of this, as we just saying, we can see the great power of sin with the greater grace of God. So my prayer in this, what do we do in light of all these things that we'll see this morning? My prayer is that you would respond to this sermon, this text, by giving yourself in even greater earnestness to praying for and sharing the gospel with the unbelievers in your life as you pursue a greater sense of awe and wonder at the glory of Jesus for yourself. And that it would be out of that greater, great, increasing sense of awe and wonder at the glory of Jesus that would drive your prayers and drive your sharing, no matter what it costs. So let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for all of your word in this passage in particular that we get to look at this morning. I pray that in every way we would understand it as you mean us to and apply it as you mean us to. Let us miss nothing that is here. I pray that I would be a faithful guide through this text. I pray that we would be a faithful people in our response to this text. And we thank you already that we know we won't and we can't until Christ returns. But Jesus died even to pay for our well-intentioned but falling short attempts to honor you according to your word. And we thank you that now in Christ you receive as righteousness all attempts at obedience that we offer in faith, imperfect as they may be. Thank you for your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, last week we considered the Jews' response to the, or Jesus' response to the question of the Jews. Are you the Christ? We've been waiting for the Christ for centuries. It's promised to us in the scriptures. Are you him? This morning, we're going to consider the Jews' response to Jesus' response. And they moved, once again, as we'll see, from disbelief to murderous intent to a resignation to capture Jesus. Disbelief. Though unstated, it doesn't say this explicitly, the Jews didn't, that the Jews didn't believe Jesus' claims is clear in their response. Because they assumed that Jesus couldn't be who he said he was, the only possible conclusion they could draw then was that he was a blasphemer. 
And the only acceptable response to that kind of blasphemy they believed was stoning. And to be, to be clear, we've seen this already in John, but to be clear once again, there were certain crimes which God commanded to be punished by stoning. And blasphemy was, in fact, among them. You can look up Leviticus 24.16 later if you want it, or if you want. According to the law of God, stoning was the due penalty for blasphemy. And we've seen this before from the Jews anyway, earlier in John's Gospel. In chapter 8, at the end, we read this. Jesus claimed here that I and the Father are one, and that's when they picked up their stones to stone him. Well, he made a similarly spectacular claim at the end of 8, and he said to the Jews, Truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am, taking on the name of God for himself. And so in 859, they picked up stones to throw at him. We've seen again more than once in John's gospel, their logic was mostly sound, though possibly not entirely. And I'll come back to that in just a bit. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if the claims that he was making weren't in fact true of him, he was a blasphemer who should be stoned according to their law. The problem was not ultimately in their logic. It was with their first premise, that Jesus could not be the Christ. The main point here is that it was their disbelief in Jesus and his claims that led to the response that followed. And given their disbelief, the response made sense. But before we move on, I want you to lock in on something practically as you seek to trying to help you make sense of this passage in order that we can live more fully in light of it. And so on a practical level, I want you to lock in on something. This is how disbelief always works. This is how disbelief, active or passive, if you fail to believe something that's true or believe something that isn't true, this, the response of the Jews, is what always happens. Every time we sin, Grace, you and I, re real sins, think of the last sin you committed. Probably you don't have to think back all that far but draw it to mind, or, or are even slow to obey the commands of God that you have, it is still, so we see it in dramatic fashion as the Christ stood in front of the Jews and they refused to receive him as such. We see it in a dramatic fashion there. But every time you and I disobey or are even slow to obey, it is only because some, probably hidden from us or unknown to us, pocket of unbelief causes some aspect of Jesus' teaching or promise to seem foolish to us. We think we can reason through the situation better than Jesus could. We don't necessarily think that consciously, but that's functionally what's happening every time we disobey or are slow to obey. If you and I truly believed everything God's Word says about who, who He is, who we are, what He is doing, and what it means for us to live as He intends— if we truly believed everything the Word of God says about that, if none of it seemed at least a little silly to us, we'd walk constantly in the kind of perfect peace and love and joy and courage and obedience we see in Jesus. But we don't, which means there are still pockets of unbelief in us still. In other words, practically, this means that every time you skip a quiet time or talk trash to a friend or your spouse or your kids, Every time you hesitate to evangelize someone who needs the gospel, every time you fear man and not God, every time you get more excited about your hobbies than Jesus, 
or spend your money on worldly things or look at filth on the internet. Every time you sin in any way, and I sin in any way, it's rooted in some form of unbelief, and what results is always folly. It's always foolish to act not according to things as they are. Unbelief in the word and promises of God is that. So therefore, Grace, consider the folly of the response of the Jews. Just put yourself We need to do this. We need to imagine ourselves standing before the very Son of God, being angry with him instead of bowing down to worship him. And again, we see this. Consider the folly of the response of the Jews to the Son of God standing before them and recognize that it stemmed from their unbelief in the truths of God. And then see yourself in that and aim your prayers directly and consistently at your own remaining unbelief, that the Spirit would root it out in you wherever you don't see it, and where you do, that the Spirit would help you gain victory over it. Pray this not just for yourself, but the people in your lives, and us as elders, and members of Grace Church, and your kids, in order that we might live truly in the wisdom and abundance that Jesus came to bring. Well, again, their their disbelief, our disbelief, can never stop with mere thinking. It always works out into practice. And so it was the unbelief of the Jews that caused them to respond as they did. And it was because the Jews persisted in their unbelief that they persisted in their attempt to carry out the due penalty for one who falsely claims to be God or who blasphemes God. Zealous for the law and incensed by all that Jesus said and did, the Jews, verse 31 says, picked up stones to stone Jesus. Now before they could launch the first one, In a further attempt to reveal their folly and help them to see their truth, Jesus said something. He said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, from God. For which of those good things that I have done are you going to stone me? We considered these good works from the Father last week. He turned water into wine and miraculously healed the official son and healed a man crippled from birth and fed 5,000 and walked in water and healed a man born blind and performed many other signs that are not even recorded at that time as well. And Jesus' point here is simple and familiar. This is my paraphrase of what Jesus was saying. As you consider what to do with my words, you heard what I just said. You think the right response is to pick up stones and throw them at me. But as you consider what to do with my words, consider the things you've seen me do. I've made big claims, to be sure. They're they're big claims. I'm not denying that. But to prove that they are from the Father, I've done marvelous works that could only come from someone who is one with the Father. You would do well to weigh the spectacular things you hear from me against the equally spectacular things you've seen from me. If I hadn't done the things I have done, your skepticism and unbelief about the things I've said might might have some warrant. At least it would be understandable. But if you can bring yourself to believe your eyes, you ought to believe your ears too. There's a similar principle at place for you and I as well, Grace. We must preach the gospel to the world, but we must also live lives that testify to the truthfulness of what we teach and preach. One of the means... Remember this, when you're in the grocery store, driving, or talking to your neighbors, one of, one of the means God uses to convince people of the truthfulness of the gospel and its transforming power 
is the changed and changing lives of his people, of Christians. That is what Jesus meant when he said, let your light so shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you're going to proclaim the gospel's power to forgive and to free and to transform, it should be obvious that your message makes the most sense if your life is marked by humility and holiness and freedom and courage and love that can only come by the forgiveness and acceptance of God who puts his spirit in us. So, a little bit more down to earth still. In the same way, who are you more likely to believe when they tell you of the effectiveness of a muscle-building pill? Someone who is puny or someone who is ripped? Or a diet pill, someone who is fit or someone who is way overweight? Or a golf coach, a scratch golfer who's putting that into practice? Or a 25 handicap or a parenting book? Someone whose kids are unusually well-behaved or exceptionally disobedient? Ultimately, grace, it is the grace of God that opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. In that way, God is not somehow prevented from being able to save someone because of your hypocrisy or mine. But Jesus' example in our charge is clear. In our ministry, in our proclamation of the word of God, we are to call people to look at our lives as evidence of the truthfulness of our message. That's what Jesus was doing functionally here. Well, would it work for the Jews? He tried it before and it hadn't. Would Jesus recalling his good works convince the Jews to rethink their disbelief? When he did them, when he did the good works he was drawing their minds to, they only served to incense the Jews. Instead of standing in awe as they should have, they angrily accused him of breaking the Sabbath when he healed the man born blind, for instance. Well, what, what about this time? Maybe it'll be different this time. Look at verse 33 to find out. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Once again, the point is Jesus' perfect actions. They're perfect in every way. He, he did miracles, but in every way he acted exactly as the Father would have him and have us, and yet none of that made a dent. His point fell on deaf ears yet again. Well, not yet ready to give up, however, Jesus changed tactics just a bit. As he often did, Jesus used the Jews' own exegesis against them. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, Jesus, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? This this needs a little bit of explaining. In verse 34, Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, 6 and 7. Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. In full, those two verses read, this is what they say. I said, this is the Lord speaking. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. It was agreed upon. Jesus knew this. Jesus understood their interpretation of this psalm. And so it was agreed upon by the Jews that this psalm recalled God speaking to his people, almost certainly to the Israelites after having received the law, the Ten Commandments from God, when Moses went up to get them on Mount Sinai. Here's the idea behind this. Jesus was trying to impress upon them this this idea 
that God called ordinary Israelites, all those who were given the Ten Commandments by Moses. He was calling ordinary Israelites, the Jews, them to whom the word of God came. He called them gods and then sons of the Most High. You get get what Jesus is saying? In other words, Jesus is saying, according to your interpretation of Psalm 82, God called the children of Abraham gods. And so Jesus took their interpretation of the psalm and used it against them. If the Jews were questioning, if the Jews who were questioning Jesus understood this passage to teach that God himself called all of you gods, then why would it be blasphemous for me to call myself the son of God, which is a lesser claim still? If it's one thing to say you're gods, it's definitely less to say just a son of God. That's Jesus' logic here. Jesus pressed his point even more in stating, this is your law. You've already accepted it. This is your interpretation of it. And we know that scripture cannot be broken. In other words, if it was true then, as you say, it is true today, as you say. If it wasn't blasphemy for God to say it of his people, then you are God's. Why would it be blasphemous for me to say something even lesser, that I am the son of God? All right, what's not entirely clear, and I'm, I'm eager to talk to any of you about this who are interested in this. It's not entirely clear if Jesus believed that this was the right interpretation of Psalm 82, or if he was just using it against them. If this is, if this is your standard, I'll use your own standard against you. What's more, there were certainly things that Jesus said that would have been blasphemous if they were not true, even if this wasn't one of them. Regardless, however, it seems that Jesus' argument landed. If we are to read the switch of the Jews from stoning him to merely arresting him as a lessening of the sentence pronounced on Jesus, it's almost as if in their changing to a lesser sentence, they acknowledged the rightness of Jesus' critique of their exegesis. Well, returning then to the argument he'd made before, Jesus said, verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe my works. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, at, at the least, I couldn't do these things if God wasn't working through me. Believe that. Jesus effectively said to the Jews that even on their own terms, they were wrong to respond to him as they did. And then he used that to point them back once again to his miracles. They show that my words are to be believed because they, like my works, are from the Father. One practical thing for us to see here, Grace Church, this is profound, is that bad doctrine is bad. You might want to write that down. That's hard to remember. Bad doctrine is bad. And one aspect of the badness of bad doctrine is that it always has holes. I I really, really want you to understand what I'm saying here. This is a big deal. The reason that the Jews could be tripped up doctrinally by Jesus is because their doctrine is off to begin with in lots of ways. And like all bad doctrine, here is something I want you to feel. You already do. I want to give you words for something you feel every day. Like all bad doctrine, theirs, the Jews in Jesus' day and ours today, couldn't consistently and comprehensively explain the world. What I mean is they can experience things that their doctrine could not explain. Does that make sense? All bad doctrine is like that. 
If your doctrine is bad, you will encounter things or hear of people who do that your doctrine can't explain. They had wrongly concluded certain things about the Christ that prevented them from recognizing the Christ who stood in front of them. And maybe the silliest example I've ever given you, which I'm about to do, I think I can help you see this, and kids especially. I know I've told you some version of this, but I'm going to tell you again now. So a, a long, this is a long time ago. Don't, don't hold this against me today. I had no idea what a hamster looked like, okay? Um, I'm not sure why I didn't. The internet wasn't a thing back then, so that's part of it, right? There was no internet. So I had no idea what a hamster looked like. Therefore, when I saw my sister's pet hamster scurrying around on the floor in our living room, I could only assume it was a mouse. It was about the, you know, the size. I knew what a mouse was. It was about the size. I, I remember certain things sort of, you know, sort of clicking in my brain that, okay, mice are gray, though, and this thing has a bit of color to it. And mice are pretty elusive. Like, if, you know, you go after a mouse, it doesn't stick around and look at you and wonder what you're doing. It kind of gets out of there and has a hole that it goes to right away. And so, you know, determined to get rid of this mouse, I was a bit confused by how unelusive it was after when I went after it. But since I had already wrongly concluded that it was a mouse, I was not determined by these warning signs that were all around me. I was not deterred from my quest to kill it, which I successfully did. <laughs> okay, so the the point, which <laughs> um, there's more to that story. I can tell you later too. It was it was long after my sister asked, "Where is my hamster?" that it even started to occur to me that these events, her missing hamster and my slow mouse kill. We're, we're connected. <laughs> but anyway, the point is I had the wrong category, so I had no ability to make sense of what was in front of me. I know that's silly, but but I, that's exactly what the Jews were dealing with here. And that way, one of the things I tell skeptics regularly is that Christianity, in, in pleading with them to receive Jesus as the Christ, is that Christianity is uniquely able to explain everything that we experience in this life because it is uniquely true. Christianity is uniquely able to explain why hard things exist. It's uniquely able to explain why we have a sense of morality. All people of all time have understood certain things to be right and certain things to be wrong. It is why there are different kinds of things in the world. It is why we have this sense, this innate sense, that there really is meaning and purpose in the world. It's also where it comes from and how we're able to explain that. And is why we have longings for things in us that we cannot see and on and on. Grace, as you know, there have been a number of alternative competing worldviews that have gained footholds and showed some measure of saying power over time. But every one of them has holes that will eventually be discovered. Atheism's gaping hole is its complete inability to explain our innate sense of morality and meaning. It has no ability to answer that. The gaping hole in other religions is their inability to offer a genuinely and truly satisfying means of atonement. We all know that we're not what we ought to be. How do we make sense of that? How do we come back from that? The gaping hole in the transgender movement is its inability to account for basic biology. 
the gaping hole in the sexual revolution is its attempt to suggest that there are still some legitimate constraints for desire. Can't explain that. There, there, are, there can't be any unless God is God and he created us as he created us. The gaping hole in the modern notion of government as the solution to every problem is its observable inability to solve any problem. And I don't mean to say that there's no point for a God-created government, but not to solve problems. The truth alone, which is given to us in God's word alone, because God alone is truth, has no holes. You with me, Grace? That's why the Jews were experiencing what they were experiencing, and that's why you and I experience this all the time in our own lives and as we look around to the world around us. Christianity isn't merely a good idea. It is true truth. So again, perhaps convinced or at least temporarily tempered by Jesus' exegetical argument, the Jews seem to have put their stones down and determined instead merely to arrest Jesus. And so 39, again, they sought to arrest him. They'd done it before. Didn't work. Figure we'll give it another shot. But as has been the case several times before, since his time had not yet come, 39 says Jesus escaped from their hands. Jesus' time was merely a couple of months away. But it was not yet. Not one month, not one minute, not one second. Before his time had come, could Jesus be taken? Therefore, as John made clear over and over and over, since nothing can thwart the providence of God, Jesus was able to walk away from this angry mob untouched by the ever-increasingly incensed Jewish leaders. So, Grace, the glory of Jesus is beyond measure. Consider it again this morning and be amazed. If even a tiny fraction of John's descriptions of Jesus and Jesus' claims about himself are accurate, Jesus is more glorious than anyone or anything else you and I have ever seen. But then consider the destructive power of sin once again, such that it can blind us to that kind of glory. Learn from this horrible, learn from this the horrible and shocking nature of sin. It is not to be taken lightly. It kills and destroys everyone who serves it. It cannot be tamed by anyone born of man. We are right to tremble at its devastating and universal effects. Kids don't play with sin. Parents don't play with sin. It might look fuzzy at first, but it bites. Once and only once we have truly considered the glory of Jesus and the horror of sin, can we begin to grasp truly the amazingness of the grace of God that was in the man of Jesus, that can overcome that kind of sin and that kind of power and reconcile us to that kind of glory. It is for that reason, verse 42 can be true. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no sign. And they said, John did no sign. He didn't do any of these things Jesus did. But everything he said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The Jews outside of the temple persisted in their unbelief because their sin had so thoroughly blinded them to the glory in front of them and the grace offered to them. But by the grace of God, the Jews at Batania, the place where John had been baptizing at first, were given eyes to see and therefore Many believed in him. Once again, grace, sin goes all the way down and destroys all of us. But the grace of God, which came in the person of Jesus, goes deeper and heals more thoroughly still. 
There is no part of you and I in Adam that sin has not touched and will not eventually destroy. But there is also no part of you that the grace of God won by Jesus cannot reach and restore if you will hope in him. That's the power of the cross. Once again, in this passage, we're given the story of another aspect of the glory of Jesus, the blinding power of sin and the greater grace of God. As I mentioned in the beginning, my steady and thorough prayer this week has been that God would be pleased to stir us, to cause us to grow in amazement at the waves and waves and waves and waves of the glories of Jesus that continue to break upon us in John's gospel. I've prayed as well that God would use this text to help us consider in greater measure the power of sin that so thoroughly blinds and the boldness of Jesus to continue to to proclaim truth in the midst of such opposition. I urge you, therefore, in conclusion, to take these truths displayed in this passage and pray in greater earnestness for and share the gospel in greater courage with the world. Don't let, don't let up on your pursuit of taking all of the glories of Jesus, taking them in or prayerfully sharing them with the world. Please feel an urgency to take this beyond basic agreement and vague general application to memorizing specific glory passages and praying for and sharing the gospel with specific actual people. Finally, as you do these things, consider carefully your definition of ministry success. One of the, on the back, if you took a sermon outline on the back of it, one of the questions on there is, how do you define success in ministry? I'd love for you to think about that. What does it look like to do what God means us to do in the world as he intends? Do you have a category for ministry success that looks like Jesus' life? If anyone's ministry has ever been successful, it must have been Jesus, right? And yet the very Son of God, the very person we proclaim, succeeded in watching as most of the people he declared the good news to ultimately rejected him. And in that way, have you considered the fact that ministry success on our end, for you and I, is simply living consistently as Christians, sharing the gospel and truth and love, and calling people to respond in faith? And so my final charge then, Grace, is live authentically, pray earnestly, share boldly, and rest thoroughly as you entrust it all to the Lord our God.